And I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. We're we'll looking at Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11 this morning. So Matthew 21, with, this is uh, the first, of, uh, a two week, first week of a two-week break from uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so today we're looking at Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11, which is Matthew's um, account of the triumphal entry. And so we, we have now entered into Holy Week, and by Holy Week I'm referring to the events starting with uh, Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, going to the Last Supper um, on that Thursday night before the cross where Jesus is there with his closest disciples in the upper room. And then, of course, before he's arrested, uh, tortured, and tried before Pilate. And then there's the crucifixion on Good Friday. And then finally, the resurrection on that first Easter morning. Now, all, all four of the, uh, the, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, slow down rather than speed up whenever it comes to Holy Week. All four of them slow down. I don't know if you ever realized that or not, but, but they all slow down. Really, really in an unusual way, because it's quite unusual for biographies of, of, of famous people to even devote 10% of, of their pages to the, the person's death. Even if that person died in a very famous or infamous or extraordinary or violent way. However, do you realize that the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, devote about a third of their total length just to this final week of Jesus' life, heading up to the cross and the resurrection. Or think about it this way, only two of the Gospels, uh, Luke and Matthew, um, give the, the events of Jesus' birth, but all four Gospels give us detailed accounts of Holy Week. So think about that. You know, what, what does that say to us? What, what does that mean? I believe it means that if we really want to understand who Jesus is. Not, this, not, just, our, our, not just the Jesus who's a, a creation of our own imagination, us piecing together what, what, what makes sense to us and what we think um, he ought to be like, but if we really want to understand who the real biblical Jesus is, then we need to, we need to look carefully at the events that we find recorded in Scripture about Holy Week. This is one of the reasons why we have these extra services this week. You know, Palm Sunday today and this big picnic, and I'm glad you're all here for this, and I hope you'll stay, even if you weren't planning on staying. We were planning on you staying, so please stay. We've got lots of food. We need you to help eat it. But then we're going to gather again here in this room at 7 p.m. on Thursday for the Monday Thursday service. And we'll celebrate communion. As we walk through Holy Week together, remembering Jesus there in the upper room with those closest disciples there at the Last Supper. And then on Friday, we have a Good Friday service here in this room at 7 p.m. I hope you'll be there. I learn something new each and every Good Friday as we hear all of these gospel accounts about Jesus' arrest and trial and torture and crucifixion read. And so I hope, I hope you'll be here. And then, of course, we have Easter Sunday, and we have the sunrise service at 7 a.m. over in the chapel, and then we have a 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. here in, in the sanctuary. And in, in our text today, in this Matthew 21, 1 to 11 text, at the very end, there's a question. The question is, who is this? 
And that's really the question today, and, and that's really the question, I mean, it's the question each and every Lord's Day, but it's also, it's the question every Holy Week. You know, who, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Now, the triumphal entry is one of the few passages that we find in all four of the gospel accounts, but I also fear that it may be one of the, one of the more well-known passages that, that we often misunderstand that we kind of know about it and we remember the kids walking through with the palm branches, but perhaps we don't really understand it. So let's look closely at this Matthew 11 text today. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem... The whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. And we're going to look at this passage under two headings. First, Jesus is the king, but but not the king the people expected. Second, Jesus is the savior but not the Savior the people expected. So first, he's the king, but, but not the king the people expected. And so let me attempt to set the scene for us. This is the Sunday before Passover. So there are not only thousands, but hundreds of thousands of pilgrims pouring into the capital city of Jerusalem. The, the first century Jewish historian Josephus recorded that at one census, uh, that the count at Passover was 2.7 million people crammed into this small city of Jerusalem. 2.7 million. Now, even if those numbers were exaggerated, which is very possible, the point still remains, there were people everywhere. People everywhere. This relatively small city, you know, teeming with people. And our passage in Matthew 21 begins with Jesus leading this very large crowd of people. This is a large crowd of people who have recently witnessed um, several miracles, some of Jesus' you know, clearest and uh, most amazing miracles that, that many of them had witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, as John chapter 11 records for us. And then we see in Matthew 20, in the paragraph right before our text today, that, that many folks in this crowd witnessed Jesus heal two blind men. So this great crowd of people, they're, they're following Jesus into the capital city of Jerusalem on a day when hundreds of thousands of others are also entering the city. 
And, and this timing is intentional by Jesus. And I think it's worth making that point because you may remember, you may remember even from Missions Weekend, I think this was also part of one of the stories we heard just a week ago, that, that oftentimes when Jesus would, would heal someone miraculously, he would tell them, he would urge them, don't tell anyone about this. Let's keep this quiet. And Jesus did that over and over and over again throughout the Gospels' accounts. And the Gospel of John makes it clear that he did this because his hour had not yet come. His time had not yet come. But now, Jesus has performed some of his greatest miracles with a great crowd of people watching. And that's intentional. And so why? Why does Jesus do this? It's because now his hour has come. And and so listen to how the old pastor, J.C. Rowell, puts it. The time had come at last when Christ was to die for the sins of the world. The time had come when the true Passover lamb was to be slain, when the true blood of atonement was to be shed. Knowing this, he placed himself prominently under the notice of the whole Jewish nation. He died in a week when by his remarkable public injury into Jerusalem, he had caused the eyes of all Israel to be specially fixed upon himself. So now his hour has come. Now is the time for Jesus to draw attention to himself. And so he is going to start and participate in and really lead what we would consider today to be a ticker tape parade. And and so look look, look at verse 1 in Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. So at this point, Jesus and this great crowd are just across the Kidron Valley. Uh, They're not more than a mile or two from Jerusalem, so they're right there at the edge of the city. And then look at the second half of verse 1 into verse 2. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. So two donkeys, a mother and a young colt, both tied there. And Jesus sends these two disciples to fetch these two donkeys, the mother and her young colt. And the reason why, as we're going to see in the text, is because he's going to to ride into Jerusalem on this young donkey with this very large crowd of followers watching. But before we get to Jesus actually riding the young donkey into the city, let's stop and acknowledge how Jesus' command for these two disciples to go and get the donkeys points to his divine kingship. His divine kingship. See, Jesus has perfect knowledge of these donkeys. He knows where the donkeys are tied up. And he knows what the disciples need to say to the owners to get permission to take the donkeys. So think about what that says about Jesus and about his, divine, his divinity. Once again, listen to how J.C. Rowell really applies this to our lives. There is nothing hid from the Lord's eyes. There are no secrets with him. Alone or in company, by night or by day, in private or in public, he's acquainted with all our ways. The sense of our Lord Jesus Christ's perfect knowledge of all our ways ought to have an effect upon our hearts. Let us do nothing we would not like Christ to see and say nothing we would not like Christ to hear. And let us seek to live and move and have our being under a continual recollection of Christ's presence. Let us behave as we would have done had we walked beside him by the Sea of Galilee. This is the way to be trained for heaven. In heaven we shall ever be with the Lord. 
And think about this. this. This truth about living life under the watchful gaze of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ ought to be a great comfort to us and ought to be a great challenge to us. I mean, it ought to be a great comfort to think about how we live all of life, all that we do, all that we say, all we think, all we desire under the watchful gaze of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That ought to be a great comfort to us. But it also ought to be a great challenge and a great call to holiness and, and to discipleship and to obedience to God's word, to taking our sins seriously, that we live all of life under the watchful gaze of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, look at Matthew 21, verse 3. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, I've just said that, that Jesus' knowledge of these donkeys points to his divine kingship, and, and I, I actually believe that, that, that Jesus, knowing about these donkeys and seeing the disciples to get them, that this is, this is one of his miraculous works. However, there are some who wonder if Jesus prearranged this on a prior trip to Jerusalem. Some who wonder if, if the owner was a follower of Jesus. And so when the disciples said the code words, uh, the Lord needs them, the owner knew, okay, this is Jesus, let me let the, the donkeys go. But we're, we're not told that. Um, I don't want to read too much into the text. We're not told that. But ultimately, it doesn't matter that what we're told later in the passage, that all Jesus said to these two disciples was precisely fulfilled. Precisely fulfilled. And Jesus fulfilling, fulfilling all of these prophecies that pointed to the Messiah is one of the main themes in the Gospel of Matthew. And now these, so these donkeys do matter. Okay, but why do the donkeys matter? The donkeys matter because the Bible says that they matter. See, why did Jesus need a donkey to ride? On one hand, he didn't. On the other hand, he did. On one hand, he didn't. I mean, he had already walked the entire distance from Galilee. Now he's right on the edge of the city. And so he does, he's just a mile or two away. He doesn't need a donkey because he's tired. And in fact, I mean, this is the only time in all of the gospel accounts that we ever read about Jesus riding on anything. I mean, Jesus is always walking. Okay, so, so why, why a donkey? Well, the donkey matters because of what the Bible says. On the one hand, Jesus didn't need a donkey. He wasn't tired. On the other hand, he did need one because of what the Bible says. You see, 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, said the king would do this very thing. So in Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5, we read, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. But put another way, this is all symbolic and, and to point to the fact that Jesus is the king, that he is your king who came just as God's word said he would come, even down to this detail of being mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so don't miss this, friends, that, that this is no mere book, that this is the word of God, and that God's word is absolutely true, and it's given to you in love for your good. Children, 
This is the word of God. It's absolutely true. It's given to you in love for your good. Students, this is the word of God. It's absolutely true. It's given to you in love for your good. Young adults, this is the word of God. It's absolutely true. It's given to you in love for your good. Parents, this is the word of God. It is absolutely true. It's given to you in love for your good. Mature saints, this is the word of God. It is absolutely true. It's given to you in love for your good. Don't miss that. Now look, look at Matthew 21, verse 6 and 7. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So that final them is referring to their, their multiple cloaks that they put on the, uh, the young donkey to make a saddle. And so Jesus sat on them on the cloaks, on the saddle. It's, don't think of Jesus riding two donkeys, okay, at the same time. He, the them is, is the saddle made of cloaks, multiple cloaks. And so the prophecy called for the king to come to the people, humble and mounted on a young donkey. And that's exactly how Jesus rides in the town. And that's not a wasted detail. It not only perfectly fulfills the 500-year-old prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, but it also tells us something important about Jesus, something important about his kingship, something important about his kingdom, something important, important about the salvation he came to accomplish was life, death, and resurrection. You see, Jesus is the king, and he's riding into the capital city with this great fanfare, but he's not riding into Jerusalem in a chariot. And he's not riding into Jerusalem on a war horse. And he's not even riding into Jerusalem on a king's mule, as we see kings do from time to time, as David put Solomon on um, in the Old Testament. But he's coming on a donkey. And that donkey is meant to tell us something about Jesus, about who he is, about his character, about his mission. So listen to this quote. It's kind of a silly quote, but it's, it's, it's from a pastor and a professor, and it's helpful, but it's a little bit silly. He asks, but, but, but why a donkey? Because a man's transportation reveals much about him. If a man drives a minivan with car seats, with melted crayons, and partially dismembered soldiers and dolls lying about, we know he's a family man. If a young man drives a 20-year-old car with rust holes the size of a fist, he's probably a student. If a 45-year-old with salt and pepper hair hops from a little red sports car, he's probably experiencing a midlife crisis. But in a more, in a more serious, more serious, but that is helpful, I think, but a more serious quote is from my friend Justin Borger, who's a pastor in Orlando. He says, Jesus' decision to ride on a donkey detonates a bomb of biblical expectation. This was a symbolic action that spoke louder than words. There was no going back after this. By mounting a donkey for his entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus rides into Jerusalem in this royal narrative in a way that proves to be both long expected and totally unexpected. You see, Jesus is the long expected king but on that day, on that Palm Sunday, he's the king in an unexpected way for those crowds of people. The Zechariah said that Jesus would come humble and mounted on a young donkey, and that's exactly what he's doing. But that's not exactly what they expected or wanted. 
You see, the horse-mounted king came bent on war. The king riding on a donkey came in humility and peace. And Jesus is riding into the city on a young donkey. You see, Jesus is not riding into Jerusalem to overthrow, overthrow the Romans through military might. And he's not coming for the people to serve him as, as, as king, as perhaps as the type of king that the crowd in the city expected. He's coming to serve them in the greatest possible way. That Jesus is not entering Jerusalem at this time to claim his throne. He's entering Jerusalem at this time to claim his cross. You know, we, today in, in our current cultural climate, that people, you know, you know, people, many of us at times, are, are way too quick to make political statements. Notice, Jesus is not making a political statement. He's making a spiritual statement. He's making an eternal statement. That he's riding into the city on a young donkey. As Mark 11 and Luke 19 tell us, this is a donkey that's so young that it's never carried a rider before. And Jesus is riding in on that donkey. Now, the text doesn't say this, but I think we are to understand that the reason why Jesus told his disciples to not just bring the, the young donkey, but also bring his mother, is because that's telling us that Jesus is so gentle and so humble and so meek and so kind and so merciful that he wanted to bring the mama donkey along to help lead and comfort the young donkey. You see, Jesus is the king but he's the king in the most unexpected way. The second heading is he's the savior, but, but not the savior the people expected. So look at verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So the very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road to, to roll out the red carpet, if you will, for King Jesus riding in on this little donkey. And, then they, and they cut branches, and, and John's gospel account tells us these branches were palm branches. Now, palm branches were powerful symbols. However, the meaning and the symbolism of the palm branches had absolutely nothing at all to do with Passover. Okay, so why do the people have the palm branches? Well, the answer is that the palm branch had been a general symbol for Jewish nationalism for about 200 years by the time of this first Palm Sunday. And about 150 years before Jesus' triumphal entry, Simon Maccabeus drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem and restored the temple, and he was heralded by, heralded, heralded by people waving palm branches. And so the palm branch became the Jews' emblem for the promised Messiah, who they were convinced would come as a conqueror to defeat all of their earthly political enemies. So one way to understand the crowds lined up on the road waving the palm branches is that that would be similar to a 4th of July parade here in Houston with folks lined up on both sides of the street waving American flags. But in addition to the palm branches, the other important detail is the cry of the people, this cry of Hosanna. And so look, look at verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so here we see people shouting Hosanna, which means save us. Save us, please. And we see they call Jesus the son of David. And that was right. Jesus is the son of David. Now you remember this back from our, our study in, in, in Isaiah during Advent. 
that Jesus is the son of David. That the long-awaited Messiah was to be a for, God's forever king in the line of David. And they were waiting on him to come. And that's exactly how Jesus is introduced to us in the very first verse of the New Testament. You know what that says? That very first verse, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Once again, fulfillment is a key theme in Matthew's gospel. That Jesus comes to fulfill this promise to this prophecy that, that the son of David will be, the, the Savior will be the son of David. And so look back again at Matthew 21, verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they're shouting, Hosanna, save us, please. They're calling Jesus the son of David, right? This explicit acknowledgement that they believe Jesus to be their Savior. But, but they were believing and expecting Jesus to be a different type of Savior, they expected him to fight and to destroy their earthly enemies, just like King David had done centuries before, just like Simon Maccabeus had done centuries before. And they thought, this Jesus will do the same to the Romans. So they cry, Hosanna. Hosanna is a cry from the Old Testament, from the Old Testament Psalm, uh, Psalm 118, which was a psalm about the coming Messiah. And it was sung during the Passover feast so frequently that he had practically become the fight song for the Jewish uh, Independence Party. You know, j just as the Britons sing, God save the queen, Americans sing, you know, hell to the chief or God bless America, the Jews welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem with Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest from Psalm 118. And they were right. Jesus was riding into Jerusalem as the Savior. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, you know, stop, stop shouting Hosanna. You have this all wrong. He doesn't say, guys, what is this with this son of David talk? He doesn't stop them. Rather, he accepts it and he welcomes this, this fanfare. He welcomes this parade into Jerusalem. And why? The answer is because his hour had now come. The time had now come. So let me remind you of that quote that we said earlier, um, looked at earlier from J.C. Ryle. The time had come at last when Christ was to die for the sins of the world. The time had come when the true Passover lamb was to be slain, when the true blood of atonement was to be shed. Knowing this, Jesus placed himself prominently under the notice of the whole Jewish nation. He died in a week when by his remarkable public entry into Jerusalem, he had caused the eyes of all Israel to be specially fixed upon himself. And so while the crowd was right to, to wave their palm branches, to cry out Hosanna and herald Jesus as the son of David, Jesus was not the savior they expected. That he was not the savior they thought they needed. He wasn't the savior they were seeking. That he wasn't the savior they, they wanted. However, Jesus was indeed the Savior they desperately needed. Jesus was not riding into Jerusalem to save the Jews from their Roman oppressors. He's not the Savior they wanted, but he was the Savior they needed. They just didn't know it yet. You see, Jesus was riding into Jerusalem to save them from their greatest and most serious enemy. Did you know who that enemy was? It wasn't the Romans. Let me ask you, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, 
do you know who your most serious enemy is? It's an enemy of your own making. Dear Christian, do do you know who your most serious enemy was before God saved you by grace through faith in Christ? It's God. That, That in our sin and our rebellion against God, we make God our enemy. That, that, that we, of all people, and of all things we could do, we wage war against God. And yet, friends, that is not a war we want to be in because that is not a war we can win. That apart from God's grace, his saving grace in our lives, that, that we are at war with God, we have made God our enemy. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That our sin makes us enemies of God. And Jesus is the prince of peace. And this is why he rode into Jerusalem on the young donkey, because he came to achieve, to accomplish peace between Almighty God, the perfect and holy God, and sinners like us. And Jesus did this by going to the cross to die the death that we deserve to die, to pay for our sin in full, and to free us from the penalty of our sin and our rebellion against the one true holy God. But the crowds crying, Hosanna that day, did not see Jesus as the Savior that he was. They did not see him as the Savior they really needed. So if you think about that, I mean, that, that's tragically sad. It's a tragically sad situation. And Luke's account of the triumphal entry tells us that while the crowds were cheering, while they were shouting, that Jesus was crying. He was weeping over them. In Luke 19, verses 41 and 42, we read, And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. They've identified the wrong enemy. They've identified a lesser enemy. And they're desiring a lesser peace. They don't even realize it. They'd be willing to settle for so much less than the peace that the Prince of Peace will accomplish on their behalf with his life, death, and resurrection. See, our King and Savior wept over sinners. Wept over sinners who were at war with God because of their sin. Sinners who were at war with God and didn't even know it. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the only way for sinners like us to be at peace with our God. And the crowds missed it. And so listen to how our passage concludes in Matthew 21, verses 10 and 11. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem... The whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So the whole city was stirred up, or as the Greek text says, the city shook and quaked. The whole city was stirred up for the prophet Jesus. And Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is the prophet greater uh, than Moses. He's the prophet like and greater than Moses from Deuteronomy 18. That prophet greater than Moses from Deuteronomy 18 is the Savior. But that's not who the city thinks 
that it's stirred up about. You see, the crowds want the hero who would possibly be their next great military leader and who would possibly you know, raise an army and lead a rebellion to defeat the Romans, but they're not stirred up for the eternal divine son of God riding on the young donkey. They're not stirred up for the God who took on flesh and dwelt among them. They're not stirred up for the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. So the whole city asked, who is this? Who is this? And that's the question. How do you answer this question? You know, maybe you know some right answers, but in your heart of hearts, who do you believe Jesus to be? Who is he to you? That's the question today and this, this next week. Who is this Jesus? See, Jesus is the King and the Savior. But the real question for each of us is, who do you believe Jesus to be? Most of the people in the crowd on the road to Jerusalem that day saw in Jesus a, a power or a potential that they hoped that they could harness and they could use for their own purposes. You know, they perceive that this man really can rally the troops. He can raise an army. He actually can lead a rebellion against the Romans. So let me ask you, you know, is that us? Is that me? Is that you? Thinking that we can, we can use Jesus like, like this you know, spiritual, magical vending machine that we can, we can push the right buttons and get him to do for us whatever we want him to do whatever we think we need? And do we even think that we can know what we need apart from what his word tells us we need? You see, do you see Jesus as merely a help in your pursuit of what you think you want out of life? Or do you see Jesus as the Savior of sinners who calls you to humbly confess your sin, to find forgiveness through his shed blood on the cross, to receive his imputed righteousness, and then to serve him with your whole heart? You see, make no mistake, whenever we come to the real Jesus, we all must respond. That Jesus forces us to make a choice he says, either crown me or kill me, but you can't simply like me. That you can't simply use me. Do you understand that? Or do you think that you can somehow keep Jesus, okay, at arm's length away, kind of on the periphery of your life? That you can, you can have just, a, you know, I'm gonna, I'm, I don't really love Christ, his word, and his church, but I believe he's beneficial, and I believe he's useful, and so I would like to keep him over here, away from this. Away, this is my stuff. Let me keep this here. I want to kind of close this and keep this away from this, okay? But I want to keep him over here just in case I need him. And I don't want him interfering with this stuff. I can handle this on my own, but sometimes I feel like I would like a little bit extra help from him, and I'd like for him to be there. Friends, he cannot and he will not remain there. Give yourself to him. Trust him with all of it. Center your whole life on him. Don't attempt to hold any area of your life back. 
You see, it was easy that day for the crowds to cheer Hosanna whenever everybody else in the large crowd is cheering. It's easy to cheer you know, the son of David whenever everybody else in the large crowd is cheering son of David. Just as it's easy for us in here on a Sunday morning to affirm the Apostles' Creed, that I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. It's easy to do that when we're all standing and doing it here together. The question is, are we going to be doing that tomorrow when we're not here with everybody else? Are we going to be reciting the Apostles' Creed and what we believe about God what we believe about Christ and the Holy Spirit and about his word and, and, all, and how it relates to all of these other areas of our lives. And then, let me end with this. Some records indicate that because of the millions of people who would pack into Jerusalem for Passover, some records indicate that over 250,000 lambs were needed for Passover there in the first century. Okay, so even if that's a large number, the point means that while hundreds of thousands of pilgrims were pouring into Jerusalem for Passover, tens of thousands of lambs were also coming into the city. Maybe, maybe even on that same day that Christ was riding into the city, but certainly on the days before it, maybe the day just after, but they're coming into the city. Tens of thousands of lambs coming into the city. However, one of those Passover lambs was unique. You know which one it was? Do you remember back to John's gospel in John chapter 1? The way John introduces Jesus to us in John 1 verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, in the mass of humanity and livestock, there was only one true Passover lamb, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, riding on a young donkey. And he would go to the cross and rise from the grave for sinners like you and me. So who is this Jesus? This is who Jesus is. He is the Lamb of God who takes away sin, takes away my sin, who takes away your sin. May we see him clearly today and every day this holy week. And see him clearly forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is absolutely true. That it is given to us in love for our good. We thank you for passages like this that, that show us how, how Christ fulfills these Old Testament promises. We're thankful for passages like this that teach us about Christ's heart for sinners like us, for passages like this that, that challenge us to consider and to evaluate whether we are living our, our lives under the, the watchful gaze of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Passages like us that like this, that, 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 that call us to examine our lives and to be honest about whether or not King Jesus really is the king of, of our hearts or whether we're trying to hold him at a distance. Father, may we, may we be people who love Christ and who love his word and who love his church.
Lord, please write these truths upon our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.